You are listening to EMS 2020, a podcast hosted by Spencer Oliver and myself, Chris Finkston. We are paramedics with quite a bit of experience, ranging from flight paramedicine to ground transportation to even some volunteer work as well. EMS 2020 reviews scenarios based on actual out-of-hospital medical scenes. Portions of the scenarios are altered to protect the privacy of those involved and to present educational opportunities to the listener. Hey, welcome to EMS 2020. On uh, today's episode, we're going to be talking about a pediatric seizure. Spencer, you have brought a really fascinating episode today. I uh, read over your uh, show prep, and I am just on the edge of my seat to hear what you have to say today. Excellent, because uh, I'm on the edge of my seat to tell you. Uh, we actually The microphone is sort of situated in such a way <laughs> that it requires me to be on the edge of the seat. But... Yeah, but one of my favorite uh, advertisements is it's a movie so thrilling that um, how was it something like that? You have to pay for the whole seat, but you only need the edge. (laughs) It's my favorite (laughs) line I've ever heard. I have no idea where I heard that, but it's one of my favorite things. (laughs) That's that's actually a really good line, (laughs) isn't it? All right, so uh, the topic of this episode, as uh, Chris mentioned, will focus on recognizing and treating sick infants. Uh, We'll talk about febrile seizures. And uh, I.O. placement. Yeah. So uh, this is the call. An ambulance and an ALS fire department respond to a small apartment complex for a 10-month-old infant reportedly having seizures. This occurs around 10 p.m. in the late fall in the evening. Uh, the caller is the neighbor who states that the patient's family came over to ask her for help and brought their unresponsive, possibly seizing infant. Now that's an interesting thing right there. That seems like uh, that seems like an out of the norm thing, and I think there's a reason why in a little bit. But uh, typically, that's not how it goes. People don't knock on the neighbor's door; they usually just call, go straight for nine one one. That's that's usually the case that, that in my experience. But uh, so the fire department arrives first and find the infant and his family at the neighbor's very dimly lit apartment. I'm going to say this isn't the fault of the neighbors. This is just the style of the apartments where they have the one light in the. You know, they're like, oh, yeah, nobody needs a light in their living room. Right. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Anyway, the infant is seizing on their arrival, visibly tremoring, eyes upward deviated, unresponsive. They use a length-based tool to determine an IM dose of Versed and administer it to the patient to stop the seizure. Then they go about gathering history and vitals. The skin is described as normal to the touch. The patient's heart rate is 150, and their SAT probe reads low 90s with poor waveform. The patient is placed on blow-by O2, and a CBG is checked and is 75 milligrams per deciliter. The crew determines that the patient has been sick with a fever recently, as has uh, <clears throat> as have his young parents, who are just getting over their colds. This is their first child. The infant has no other medical history. Remind me later to talk about the first child uh, point. Okay. On the ambulance arrival, report is given to the medic who will be caring for the patient in the back. All right. So where we are here is we have a chief complaint of seizures and we have a chief complaint of seizures within an infant with a history of fever. So likely at this point that it's febrile seizures. So the fire department has uh, treated the seizure that they witnessed and that's sort of where we're at. Okay. So, <clears throat> sorry, go ahead. All right. So the parents are fairly distressed and everyone on the scene does their best to reassure them. 
because the kid has stopped seizing now. They're recovering uh, with the oxygen. And <clears throat> both parents want to ride uh, in with the patient, and the medic on the ambulance approves, having one in the front and one in the back. I don't know about that sometimes. Yeah, it's kind of iffy. Yeah. It, it sort of depends. But for the most part, the, the patient is no longer the infant in sure. 99 out of 100 cases, yeah. right? The kid's fine. Now we just need to kind of calm the parents. And so having one parent, you know, sit in the back where they can, you know, monitor the other one and then having the other one up front seems like a, seems like an okay choice. Yeah. I've got some comments later, but anyway. Uh, well, the patient's being packaged onto the stretcher. The parents are assisted into going over to their apartment and getting things like shoes, phones, wallets, etc., cetera, uh, by the fire department. Well, ambulance transport is required in this county, meaning that a doctor would have to be contacted if the family didn't want to go. Because of this being a first-time seizure, things are calm because the seizure has stopped and there are no immediate threats to life noticeable. As an aside, Chris, how many febrile seizures have you responded to? And of those, how many were critical? Um, I can tell, I cannot count the number of febrile seizures that I have responded to. Of those that have been critical, the problem is it's been 15 years. And um, I can tell you it's a very, very, very low number. Right. I couldn't, I, I couldn't tell you exactly what that number would be. Cause, I, cause my, in my heart, I want to say zero. Sure. Zero febrile seizures uh, have been critical, but I know I've given Versed to pediatric seizures before. I just don't remember why. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's, yeah, that's fair. All right. This is your paramedic, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. I don't know yeah. why I did it. Well, it's too many to count because he can't count that. High. <laughs> right. That's absolutely. It's really probably like six, you know, <laughs> but once I have to go into the second hand, I get confused on it. Does the thumb really count? I don't know. Yeah. Is the thumb a finger? <laughs> Find out later. <laughs> Tune into medical stuff where they'll discuss it. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) All right. So while the medic and his partner were moving the patient via the stretcher out to the ambulance, the patient starts seizing again with tonic-clonic motions in all extremities. The fire medic who was on hand uh, to assist gave the patient a second dose of Iamversed, and the patient was loaded into the ambulance. The patient again stopped seizing and is placed on the ambulance cardiac monitor, BP, and pulse oximeter. The ambulance medic asks the fire medic to retrieve the family so they can start transporting and does a full assessment now that they're in an area that they can see because, you know, there's lights in the back of an ambulance. The back of the ambulance is now better lit than the residence that they were just in. So uh, the head, ears, eyes, nose, throat, unremarkable. Neck is supple. There are no petechia visible on the chest, abdomen, back. No signs of trauma. Lung sounds are clear. The patient's skin is cool to the touch with slight modeling of the legs and arms. A cap refill is taken on on the foot is delayed at five seconds. The patient's heart rate is 160 and the BP uh, cuff on the uh, monitor comes back as question mark, question mark, question mark over question mark, question mark, question mark. The pulse oximeter is reading 95%. The patient's breathing is at 26 a minute and irregular, and they remain unresponsive. So one of the things I want to point out is that with blood pressures, and it comes back over question mark, question mark, question mark, over question mark, question mark, question mark. I laugh a little bit at that because they could just put one question mark and we'd get the point. Have you ever seen like question mark, question mark, have you ever seen like question mark, question mark, question mark, over 60? 
Like it's no, never, yeah, yeah. No. you know, or one twenty over. Eh, I don't know, <laughs> one twenty over question mark. Right, it's never happened. No, nope. I feel like they could save some power and some characters on the screen just by one question mark. And that's the important part of this episode, right there. You can <laughs> you can shut her down. Nailed it. Yep. All right. So again, uh, let's see here. Uh, so the family arrives and they're put in the ambulance with one up front and one placed in the rear facing airway seat. The fire medic is brought along as an additional rider for assistance, and the fire medic brings an additional fire EMT with them. Transported as an, transport is initiated code one, and both medics set about trying to locate an IV site, because now this is more complex than a standard febrile seizure in that there have been multiple seizures. Okay, so we've got the fire medic and the ambulance transport medic are both now looking for IVs. Yep. Okay, some sort of vascular access. Exactly. Within a few minutes of transporting, the patient begins to move again and starts to uh, starts bicycling his legs with an occasional arm lift flex. There is no crying or focused eye movements. The patient's eyes do move when the lids are lifted, but do so without any apparent purpose. So this is sort of that weird um, uh, eyes sort of uh, tracking back and forth, but not actually tracking anything. They're just sort of moving back and forth. Just a rhythmic, non-purposeful movement. Exactly. Okay. So we have some contention here. The fire medic interprets this movement as spontaneous and normal baby leg and arm movement, thinking that the verset is wearing off. The ambulance medic believes that this is yet another bout of seizing activity, albeit slightly different from the previous. The patient's vitals are mostly unchanged, just an increase in heart rate from one uh, to one six, uh, excuse me, to one seventy-five from one sixty. So there's a discussion about administering additional verset to the patient, and the fire medic is opposed. The ambulance medics stated afterwards because of the opposition and because they've administered two doses already and there would need to be an online medical control contact for additional orders to give more Versed. Uh, and the like doctor would likely want them to have an IV site to do so. He is deferring having that fight until after they've gotten access. So question to you, in this system, is this a system where, because in the system that I work, once a patient is in the back of the ambulance, the uh, ambulance paramedic is by default PIC, or rather it's their role to give away. Now I know that I've been in the back of the ambulance before, if we have like a code 99, for example, uh, going on and there's already PIC, and they're leading it, let them keep leading it. That's good for continuity. For sure. Um, but there's always, the, I always have that option to be like, look, this is going askew. Once we're in the back of the ambulance, it's now my call. Uh, is that the case here? Yes, that is the system. Perfect. Okay. Just curious. Unfortunately, there are just no suitable IV sites that either medic can find. The ambulance medic says that perhaps they should go with an IO, given that there are no IV sites. Should mention here uh, that somewhere in this time, report is given and the transport is upgraded to code three. Regarding the IO, the fire medic essentially puts his foot down on this move, citing that the patient isn't seizing and doesn't need such a, quote, incredibly painful procedure. The ambulance medic pushes back, citing that the cap refill of uh, the, the cap refill of five to six seconds, the tachycardia and uh, essentially says, okay, you don't think he's seizing, but the kid is hyperperfusing. He's sick. I agree. The fire medic counters that it is cold outside. The patient recently had a seizure and is postictal and probably still tachycardic from that. The heater is on full blast in the back of the ambulance, but it's by no means hot in the back where the patient is. Okay. So the heater may or may not be affecting the temperature of the patient at this point, at least to the extent that the fire, that the fire medic would be objectively wrong. 
It, yeah, I think that's a that's that's a fair statement. Okay. The argument ends with them agreeing to obtain a blood pressure rather than rely on a cap refill. If the patient is near hypotensive, which is 70 plus two times the patient's age in years, so if their blood, systolic blood pressure is 70, then uh, they would go with the plan of initiating the IO. If the patient was closer to normotensive, so 90 plus two times their age in years, then they would defer. Okay. So, so did they end up getting, uh, did they get the blood pressure? So here's where things get even more fun. Oh, shit. The auto cuff on the monitor continues not to read. They try different cuffs in different spots, uh, mul- Ooh, different cuffs in different spots uh, multiple times with no luck each time. So when you say different cuffs in different spots, they try different auto cuffs or so, were they trying manuals as well? Uh, my understanding is that they have the, the that this ambulance had the pediatric uh, auto cuff okay. and the uh, infant auto cuff okay. as well as the adult and the extra large. So uh, what they did was they tried the infant auto cuff on the arm, did not read. They tried the uh, kid auto cuff on the patient's thigh and then lit down in the lower calf to see if they could get it to read there. Because uh, sometimes in hospitals, you'll see alternate sites used for blood pressure cuffs. Sure. Uh, none of those read the multiple times that they tried to do this. So they try, the ambulance medic gets out the infant cuff uh, and tries his best to oscillate and then even palpate a blood pressure, uh, but with zero luck. And about the time the medic is ready to revisit the fight about the IO, he recognizes the bumps that indicate they just pulled into the hospital and now any fight to be had is moot. Right. So what do you think? Do you think the ambulance medic was overreading? Was the fire or was the fire medic under treating? So that is a hard question. So I I don't I personally don't feel that the ambulance medic was overreading. And the main reason being is that there were a couple of good points here. The to me, the debate would come with the seizing activity. Is what we're seeing seizing activity or not? In terms of where the disagreement uh would be. What really shouldn't have necessarily been disagreed upon is the signs of hypoperfusion. I think the ambulance medic was right on um, with that. I understand to be like, yeah, it was cold outside, and that would explain some of the cap refill. How old is their patient again? Nine months. Nine months. So nine months is, and, and this is just, might be from having kids. Now, here's the thing. If this was a much younger child, I mean, I know my kids, they would get cold, even a little cold, and they have these purple limbs. Sure. But not by the time they're nine months. And so maybe that's just kind of a personal thing for me where I'd be like, gosh, nine months and having slow cap refill in, in the extremities to me, uh, even if it was a little cold outside, once you're in a warm ambulance, I wouldn't expect that personally, unless yeah. something was wrong. And I think given the tachycardia and the altered level of consciousness, um, I think that the ambulance medic was right on that, that IV access was needed. Um, I also do agree that that was seizing activity, the bicycling of the legs and the, but I side with the ambulance medic on this one. I think, I think he's spot on. And here's kind of one of the things I, I had mentioned, uh, bringing up the first child thing earlier. Yeah. Do you mind if I kind of. No, let's it? go back. Okay. Yeah. So let's, I don't need to really go back too much, but this is kind of where I think it comes in. Um, be careful. With that question, is this your first child? And really consider why you're asking that. So nine times out of 10, when medics in the field ask if this is a parent's first child, what you're actually doing is gauging the parent's reaction. And 
what I would stress is that while that question can have some value, its value is, I think, uh, less than what paramedics typically give it. Uh, case in point would be my own child. Uh, we took him, he got pretty dehydrated, so we took him to the emergency room. And uh, he was our first child, and we were asked that question over and over. Is this your first child? Uh, yeah. Uh, well, he's fine. And more often than not, I want you, if you're a paramedic out there and you're asking that question, make sure you're not asking it to comfort yourself in terms of downplaying this whole thing and downplaying the parent's reaction. Make sure you're asking that question uh, on a clinical basis. Because sometimes it is important to kind of know, like, okay, like if the parents have six kids and they're reacting like this, maybe it is something. Sure. Um, but yeah, make sure you're not using it for your own comfort. Because that's kind of what happened with our kid is we were telling them everything that was happening and it was kind of getting written off. Oh, wait, they're just panicked parents. It probably really wasn't that bad because this is their first kid. So we ended up taking our child home and they said, um, you know, hey, like if he goes 10 hours without a wet diaper, bring him on back. Well, 10 hours went by no wet diaper. So we mm. brought the kid back. The kid, my son, brought, <laughs> brought my son back. You know, the kid we found inside of Um <laughs> So we brought him back and just got downplayed left and right again and again. We're like, you told us to come back. And then when they finally said, you know, let's get an IV and let's get some fluids in this kid. They couldn't get an IV. Then all of a sudden they're like, gosh, he must be dehydrated. And then they did get an IV and they start giving him fluid and he doesn't have a wet diaper. They give him more fluid and he doesn't have a wet diaper. Now he's being admitted. Yeah. Now he's being admitted and they're calling Panda. Panda, by the way, is a local uh, transportation team that specializes in pediatrics, and only sick kids go to Panda. And you can imagine our dismay <laughs> at the hospital staff for sending us home the first day when they shouldn't have. And so, and I will tell you, the one thing I heard over and over and over again from every new nurse that came in, is this your first kid? So be careful with that question, understand why you're asking it, and don't let it impact your actual physical It is kind of a loaded of question, because yeah. it allows you to sort of dismiss, because yeah, you know, like it, the question is asked for a reason, which is how seriously do I have to take this complaint? Right. And, you know, uh, unless, you know, like there's, yeah. Yeah. So just don't do an assessment. Do on your, the child. exactly. Do your assessment. So I think one of the things that uh, is really good to talk about in this case is let's talk about febrile seizures. So there's a lot of causes or potential causes for seizures in children. Hypoxia, trauma, neurological disorders, hypoglycemia, hypovolemia, sepsis, etc. Uh, so we're just going to focus on febrile seizures, which is the most common of the bunch. Uh, and so what we found is that febrile seizures are seizures that occur in about 2 to 5% of American children uh, between 5 to 6 months and 5 years old. There's actually a little bit of despair uh, of, of um, differing info on that. Uh, usually associated with a recent fever of 101, according to the NIH. Some believe that a rapid rise in temperature causes these events, although multiple sources dispute this and believe it's attributable to how high a fever gets. Uh, febrile seizures are classified as either simple or complex. Simple include tonic-clonic movements, stop without intervention, are less than 15 minutes in duration, and do not reoccur within 24 hours. And there are no previous neurological problems associated okay. with it. Complex are longer than 15 minutes, include focal feature, uh, features, recur within 24 hours, or the patient has a known history of neurological what problems. What is a good example of a focal feature in a seizure? I would say that uh, my understanding of focal fe features would be like 
and you know, like there's generalized seizures where the patient sort of is, you know, like tonic clonic movement throughout their body, whereas focal seizures would be like in one particular limb or, uh, okay. Sort of uh, focused, if you will. So you might have, have like, um, like the way a dog wags its tail. You have a kid moving his arm just back and forth like that. That's, that was my understanding okay. from, uh, from reading. So the seizures themselves are often harmless, but the cause may be something serious like influenza or meningitis or sepsis, which can cause other, uh, significant problems, you know, metabolic derangements, hypovolemia, etc. So, uh, how we want to kind of go through this is if the patient is seizing on arrival, follow your local protocols in terminating the seizure. Uh, so in this call, they used for said intramuscularly. Try and get a good history, get a good description of the seizure, and keep in mind the different presentations of seizures. Uh, find out the length of the seizure, if there have been multiple seizures, recent illnesses at home, school, daycare, past medical history of the patient, allergies, meds. Uh, you know, cause it, you'd hate to find out like, oh man, yeah, it was a febrile seizure. And then it turns out like they got into grandma's cardiac medications, you know, assess the patient, look for alternate, alternative causes such as trauma, uh, assess, uh, the skin looking for signs of rashes, pallor, tenting, get a temperature if you can assess the fontanelles, get a cap refill, absolutely get a CBG. Nah, not because, not just because uh, seizures can uh, seizures can be caused by hypoglycemia, but they can cause actually hypoglycemia because kids burn through their glycogen stores. Oh, and one of the things that I also want to point out is when you're assessing fontanelles, be familiar with where fontanelles are and exactly what that means. Um, the easiest fontanelle to see is the one just kind of. Um, just right there in the middle. The unicorn the horn? The unicorn horn. Hey, good point. Yeah. So yeah. right where, if you were to put a unicorn horn on the kid, that right. would be right where the fontanelle is. And you are, uh, what are you looking for in there? You're looking for both sunken. Uh, in the case of a sunken font fontanelle, that's a sign of dehydration, correct? Yes. Yep. And so if you have a bulging fontanelle, that'd be a sign of increased intracranial pressure. Absolutely. I would add one more thing here. And that is one of the things, if you're having trouble on what to assess, when it comes for me, uh, both seizures and syncope, although they both have their additional stuff. One good thing to always check off is just like you would in a code 99, uh, your H's and T's. Yeah. If absolutely. you really consider your H's and T's, most of your H's and T's can actually cause seizure-like activity as well. So if you know your H's and T's well, you can apply that to a seizure also during your, nice. during your assessment. I misspoke earlier, by the way. I said that kids burn through their glycogen stores. What, <clears> it, what I really meant to say is they burn through the sugar that they have in their body. They don't have the glycogen stores that adults have. Gotcha. Still, you know, they're growing. Babies. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why they can burn through their, uh, their blood sugar so fast. All right. So, uh, treatment in simple cases, we basically just trend vitals and mental status. All things should improve. Uh, use your guide to establish normal vitals. Most of the attention is paid to panicked parents. For myself, I don't typically initiate IVs in these kids. My, neither, neither do I. I try my best just to kind of keep the parents and the kids together. The kiddo gets secured to the stretcher in a PDMate device, and the parent sits on the bench with a seatbelt next to them. Uh, but, you know, I work for a place that has policies that allow that. Yeah. A PDMate device, by the way, is just a device that basically adds, if you've ever seen like car seat, car seat straps in a child's seat, car seat, yeah. just, it just adds those to the gurneys. Yep. Uh, in complex cases, we have to treat the reoccurrent seizures. We have to trend the length and the type. And most of the focus will be on treating the underlying issue. 
So that's where we start looking for the underlying causes like hypovolemia, sepsis, cold, warm shock. Um, you know, we establish IVs and IOs if necessary. And if they're febrile, then, you know, we consider antipyretics. So like, you know, rectal Tylenol, um, Mm-hmm. And so on. Uh, so revisiting the call, the patient was described as having bicycling leg motion with single arm gross motor movement, arm extension flexion. So do you think in those descriptions that this kid was seizing? Yeah, I mean, and I mentioned earlier, I think it was seizing activity. I mean, I think when we when you have that kind of repetitive motion that's otherwise inappropriate, I mean, it's just not. It's just is not there, seizing. playing devil's advocate, is there something to be said about, all right, we've given you know, uh, I don't know how much Versed to this kid was given, you know, I am, but mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's two doses of I am Versed. Is it possible that this kid was just postictal and so, you know, like gorked out on Versed that they're just like, whoa, man, I, I don't know how a nine month old would internalize the internal dialogue of a nine month old, but I imagine it to be something like, bro, <laughs> right? Jesus. Uh. <laughs> I really love you, man. I haven't uh, felt this way since I was like milk drunk last night. <laughs> uh. So, uh, <laughs> uh, thanks. I'm sorry. <laughs> anyway, so, uh, yeah, I, I think there's, um, there is some presence for that. I think to me, the, the differing factor is whenever you see kind of like these robotic repetitive motions. Yeah. And that, that to me is that line. And, and the thing is, Especially in kids, I think there is an internal want for them to be okay. Because one, uh, they're kids. We want kids to be okay. We don't give two shits about adults 90% of the time. But children, children we care about, you know, and we're like, yeah, we want them to be okay. And there's that. And then the other reason is they're hard to work on. Yeah. They're really hard to work on. Like they're hard to get IVs on. Their airways are hard to control. They don't talk to you. Yeah. You know, and so I think... It's really easy for, and Spencer and I, you, you and I actually ran a call together. It was a, an older pediatric, it was a, a suicide attempt. And during the suicide attempt, uh, there was another paramedic on scene who was actually looking at repetitive eye motion. Uh, yeah, it's just uh, forever. Yeah, just kind of seeing that. And to me, that big kicker. And you and I were both like, yeah, it doesn't look normal. And to me, the big thing is it's that repetitive, like back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Or the bicycling of the legs is a repetitive motion in and of itself. What you actually have is flexors and extensors taking turns rhythmically. And yeah. that's what causes that bicycling. Uh, flexors and extensors referring to muscle groups. And... Um, that's what causes that bicycling. And so to me, that's the clear divisor. So... Is there a chance it was, uh, I would say it's understandable for someone to see, for a paramedic to see that as purposeful movement. But I, given the description in, in what you've given, I, I don't think that describes pers- uh, yeah. purposeful movement. I, and I think too, if you kind of put it all together, mm-hmm. then it sort of favors in the side of seizure because you've had a kid who's already seized twice, right? Con- you know, like continue to seize refractory seizures. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, from all appearances, is ill, which kind of brings us to the next point. Let's go into pediatric shock because that was the other point of contention. Mm-hmm. So we had one medic saying, I think they're seizing. And also I think they're, they're sick. Like right. they're hyper perfusing. So they're in shock. Mm-hmm. Um, so and the other, have seizures from shock. Yeah. Right. And the other person's going like, I don't think this is shock. So yeah. let's talk about uh, pediatric shock. Um, so the second question is whether or not the patient needed IO IV access for resuscitation. 
Was the patient actually in some type of state of shock or is the ambulance medic overreading? So we're looking at vitals, skin, uh, mental status, and their work of breathing. Uh, and so the fire medic explanation for the above, because uh, we remember the vitals being that 175, the skin is mottled and mm-hmm. cool. Uh, their mental status is unresponsive and their work of breathing is irregular. But so the, the fire medics uh, explanation is they never did get a blood pressure and they were never able to get a blood pressure. Uh, the, the fire medics argument is that, hey, listen, this kid is postictal. We've given versed. You know, like that's this is what we should expect. That mm-hmm. could explain all of this. And it's cold and like it's cold. Um, the ambulance medic is going like, these are all signs that the patient is sick. So let's review. Shock is simply a state of hypoperfusion where tissues and end organs don't get the oxygen and nutrients. In adults, we rely heavily on blood pressure and mean arterial pressures to demonstrate whether or not someone is in a state of shock. With children, they compensate differently. They compensate by increasing their heart rate. It's the only way for them to increase their cardiac output. So try and get blood to those organs. And they're trying to shunt blood to their core. So there are a few types of shock that could play, uh, that could be at play for this kid. Hypovolemic shock. If the kid has been sick, not eating well, not drinking well, vomiting, or had liquid bowel movements, then this is a real possibility. I don't know. We don't have that in the history. Kids have fluid volumes that adults have. Kids don't have the fluid volumes that adults have and are far more susceptible to this type of shock. They need fluid resuscitation. Sepsis, an infection that causes a massive vasodilation, meaning that the skin and other important organs, uh, you know, like kidneys, things like that, aren't getting perfused. This further gets categorized into cold and warm shock based on the presentation. But in this case, we'd say that it's more in line with cold shock with the poles, uh, poor skin signs and the delayed cap refill. So uh, warm shock, just for people who aren't familiar with it in, in you know, pediatric patients, is their skin's going to be uh, like you push down and it's very like flash, like a mm-hmm. flush. Um, and they'll have like bounding pulses. Um but everything else will still be like poor, like their mental status will be poor. You know, they'll have a fever. Yeah. Uh, so the best indicator for whether or not a kid is sick is using the pediatric assessment triangle uh, that PALS t- uh, teaches and keeping it simple. You really just don't want to find yourself trying to o- uh, don't overthink yourself out of a perfectly reasonable course of action. And this is why this is sort of, this is where like the brilliance of PALS comes in. Uh, you look at their appearance, their work of breathing, and their circulation. And essentially, s- circulation is just skin color and cap refill. Appearance is whether or not a kid is looking at you, how they're presenting, you know, are they interacting with their parents? Are they interacting with you? Are those interactions appropriate? Mm-hmm. Uh, their work of breathing, are, you know, like, are they working hard to breathe? Are they barely breathing? Are they breathing normally? Is it Should normal they be for, working hard to breathe? Should they be working they'd hard be there, to breathe? Yeah. yeah, that's a good question too. Um, so the patient in this, uh, the patient in our scenario here appears altered. They are not acting age appropriate. Sure, they just had multiple seizures and might be postictal, and we gave them Versed, but they've been sick and they had a seizure, a complex febrile seizure, 
meaning that we should be more open to them being sicker. Work of breathing. The rate isn't too slow or too fast. It's described as slightly irregular. And now we go to the circulation. Skin is mottled. There's a significant delay in cap refill, and they are tachycardic. So the pediatric assessment triangle tells us this kid is sick. Mm -hmm. Because kids decompensate quickly, the prudent medic would have gotten access and given a 10 milliliter per kilogram fluid bolus and looked for signs of improvement. More fluid might be needed. This might seem too simple, but it's designed to be that way because kids are not little adults. They have different physiology. The pediatric assessment triangle helps us to appreciate this and recognize sicker kids. Again, don't overthink yourself out of a perfectly reasonable course of action because is the risk of over-treating worse than the risk of under-treating? And that's almost never the case. And we've touched this on other episodes as well in that it's far better to have a nurse roll their eyes or a doctor roll their eyes at you for overreacting than to shake their finger at you for underreacting. Yeah. And um, and I think in this case, the overthinking came to be it's like, well, we recognize because it's not like the firefighter didn't uh, the fire medic didn't recognize these things. They just overthought the explanation. Yeah. And so what let's talk about their idea of trying to get a blood pressure and basing treatment off of that, because that was essentially the agreement that both of them came to, which right. was, OK, you're right. You know what? Let's get a blood pressure and see. Are you suggesting this is flawed? Uh, it's a little flawed. All right. As it turns out. A falling blood pressure is a sign that you are way behind the ball, and the pediatric patient is heading into an irreversible shock. Remember that kids' blood pressures, because of their their compensatory (laughs) compensatory mechanisms, because of (coughs) can seem normal because of the shunting. The heart rate and skin signs and mental status are a much better measurement. Sick kids need interventions before their blood pressure falls. So in this case, they should have started the IO. Yes. So blood pressure, I mean, if you're looking at a graph, kids have a plateau when it comes to blood pressures. It'll stay really high. And in a lot of ways, they'll actually compensate. But blood pressure specifically, it'll stay high to normal. It'll stay normal tensor for a while. And then by the time it's falling, it's, it's falling, falling. It's not a gradual decline. Yeah. So one of the pushbacks to the IO, because, you know, the notice that the medic, uh, both medics didn't have a problem trying to look for IVs. Right. When the only contention became when it was like, okay, we can't get an IV. Let's put an IO in this kid. Right. Uh, and, uh, that's where, that's where the dude was like, no, man, like that's incredibly painful and unnecessary. So quick discussion on IOs. Yeah, because we we've heard and, you know, I've put in IOs, I've put in humoral IOs, I put in tibial IOs, although all the humoral IOs were on, you know, awake, alert people and the tibial IOs were on, you know, dead people, mostly dead people. Right. Uh, We don't mean cadavers. We mean code 99s here. But yeah, people seem to be cadavers. All right. (laughs) Anyway, Um, so I like I recognize that it's it can be a painful procedure. Um. So we've talked about, is it an unnecessary procedure? And I think you and I are both in agreement here that, yeah, in this case, this would have been a necessary procedure. Yeah, this would, this, this was needed in this yep. case. So, but to kind of, to round this out, let's talk about, uh, just a very quick overview on IVs. How painful are, excuse me, IOs? How painful are IOs? Yeah. 
they're basically comparable to IVs with insertion. Yeah. Um, uh, the, the best literature I can find just says like, yeah, it hurts about as much as an IV does getting put in. Um, it does hurt a lot more when you start trying to push, uh, fluids through it. Right. And part of that is because there's, uh, you know, your bone has little, uh, pressure sensitive sensors essentially inside the, uh, space that go like, Oh my God, there's a lot of pressure here. And that causes a lot of pain. Uh, we can mitigate that. Uh, pretty well with lidocaine. Mm-hmm. And interestingly enough, there's uh, been studies done, and I won't go into the details. We'll put the links in the show notes uh, so that you can kind of read through the studies. But the studies say that uh, tibial IOs are actually more painful and have less flow rate than uh, humeral head IOs. Uh, and that the humeral head IO hurts less when you push through it, controlling for pain with lidocaine. And you can actually push a lot more fluid through it, which totally makes sense when you think about the fact that, you know, like it hurts more because it's a tighter space down in the tibias. That makes sense with then less flow. And also with less flow. That makes sense. Um, so in this case, um, there's, you know, like it, they should have done an IO in this kid. It would have been a tibial IO, but that would have worked. And, you know, they could have mitigated with a little bit of lidocaine if necessary. I don't know. This is sort of one where like, if they're not really responsive, you know, then probably just give them the fluid and without worrying about trying to like give them anything. And, and I think your gauge for whether or not, and I think your gauge for whether or not they're going to be responsive is going to be pretty quick. Cause if you're drilling a bone needle into them and they don't respond and, you know, again, if, if you're worried about like, oh man, we're going to do this thing and then we're going to show up because, you know, you do get a different look from the receiving staff when you show up and you've got somebody with an IO in versus an IV. Um, the company says they're remarkably easy to pull out and I haven't heard any feedback uh, that I can recall about anyone going like, oh man, that IO, whew. <laughs> Yeah. Great. Thanks for that. That's going to be a pain in the butt to pull out. Um, you know, then there are your standard complications and risks, you know, like you're, you are putting a foreign object into somebody's body. So there's a risk for infection. You know, there's a risk, uh, the procedure's done wrong. Um, and you end up injuring somebody, but for the most part, it, you know, if you're, if you're trained and you're, you know how to use it, you know how to do it, you know, take your time, do the procedure, right. You know, push your lidocaine, push your <clears throat> fluid bolus so that you can kind of clear out that space so that it'll flow better and then put it on a pressure bag and flow in the appropriate amount. You and know, do it. And then do it. Yeah. In this case, you know, like, uh, for the kid, uh, you know, the, the risk would just be like, Oh, I'm going to give them too much fluid, you know, because 10 mils per kilogram is, you know, the ideal amount for a fluid bolus. So don't overshoot. All right. Um, so again, uh, I think that sort of takes away that point. Uh, I think revisiting the call, uh, they should have, they should have just gone with the IO instead of, you know, squibbling over whether or not to place access. So one of the things you brought up earlier on in the episode was, Hey, who's in charge of this patient? Right. Because, you know, like it seems like, the 
the back and forth wasn't necessary. You could, because the, the ambulance medic, it's their patient. It's on their stretcher. Could have just been like, yeah, tough nuts. I'm like, I'm doing these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what are some pro tips to getting your way? So I think <clears throat> getting your way uh, can be really difficult. And I would say, I don't have a good pro tip for this particular scenario specifically, but one of the things you really want to do, and I think this is important in EMS in general, is build your reputation. Your reputation sticks with you because we're all going to be working with each other. And so what I've typically done is I, throughout my career, I've learned to pick my battles. And so the thing you got to understand is if you're that paramedic that typically quibbles and quabbles about things that are clinically insignificant, um, just because you don't like fire department medics or you don't like ambulance medics, then every time they see you, they're just going to ignore everything you say because you always complain. Yeah. You're always that way. But if you're typically very courteous and you're a team player and when you finally do speak up, it's going to give them reason to pause and be like, okay, normally he's a team player. Normally he's like right along with whatever we're going to do. If he's really speaking up, then I really need to listen to him. Don't become so noisy that all you are is background noise. Yeah. So that I think is a solid tip is bring is having a good uh, reputation and a good relation with people okay. uh, out in the field. I think when it comes to this particular scenario, yeah, um, it's hard not being there. And I don't know if this is what went on, but I think the best thing that you can ever possibly do is present your findings calmly in a friendly manner and clinically. Yeah. Always throw clinical stuff out there. Um, the, the, Things that will often uh, get rejected by other people is like, oh, well, this is how I learned it. Or, well, this is how my physician advisor wants me to do it. Sure. Those kind of things. Those will typically get blocked out. In my, in my experience, that gets blocked out by other people because it's like, well, I don't, I, then I disagree with your physician advisor. You know, like, yeah. I don't know what to tell you. But if you come back clinically being like, hey, I don't feel that this does not look like seizing activity to me because, uh, or this looks like seizing activity to me because we have repetitive actions over and over again. If this patient was postictal, I would expect to see some baseline tracking with the eyes or closing their eyes or withdrawing from pain. Some things that seems to make sense. I don't have that here. And then even bring up the point is let's go for the IO. And you know, if the kid really starts withdrawing from that pain, then I'll say, Hey, I'm wrong. But if they don't, that gives us a good indicator of where we're at. Yeah. And also feel free to take responsibility. Uh, make sure it's known that you're a responsible paramedic and that you're going to take responsibility for the actions that you take. That actually, that, that last one's a, a really great idea. Cause that's, I think that's part of the thing is, you know, you, you're both going to show up to the ER and, mm-hmm. you know, and then it's like, who did this? Yeah. Oh, uh, <laughs> we did. We totally did. Yeah. yeah. All T- of us <laughs> together. Yeah. Mostly yeah. him, actually. <laughs> um, but. I, I, I was massaging his shoulders while he was doing the procedure. <laughs> and, and I think, uh, yeah, that's your thing. And, and I will say, like, I sympathize with the fire medic in this because I don't want to, I don't want to be the paramedic that puts an IO in a febrile seizure. That's not critical. I don't want to be that guy. <laughs> and so, sure. yeah, so there's a strong inclination to want to make sure you're treating at the appropriate level. Um, yeah, so I get it, but... Nah, I don't know if that's what ends up happening in this one. Yeah. Well, actually, I do know because I read it. But yeah. anyway, let's uh, let's do the end of call summary here. So the crew arrived to the pediatric ED at the hospital and were met by the rapid response team. Report was given to the lead nurse and the doctor. Uh, the staff were critical of the lack of treatment performed in the field. 
uh, to the point where actually the fire medic apologized to the staff. Uh, oh, wow. Uh, at the bedside. Uh, they obtained access uh, and the patient was given Ativan, a fluid bullet of D5NS, and the patient was started on uh, phosphonatoin, which is an anti-seizure medication. Okay. And no further uh, follow-up was available. All right. But uh, I think that sort of summarizes it nicely. Yeah. So what we had there is, I think it is one of those calls where both paramedics had an understandable um, take on it. And I, I love the quote you have in there is don't overthink yourself out of a personally, uh, a, sorry, don't overthink yourself out of a perfectly reasonable course of action. And I think that's what happened here. And I think there's a lot of reasons and there's a lot of bias that want to pull people. There's a lot of reasons and a lot of bias that want to pull people more towards that simpler answer because it means the kid's really okay and it's a lot easier to deal with. It's a lot easier to say like, hey, turn the heat up in the ambulance than it is to drill an IO into a kid. Absolutely. And the consequences of turning up the heat when you didn't need to is a lot less than giving an I.O. when you didn't need to. That's valid. And so I can see some uh, some bias there. Yeah. I, th- I think both people probably wanted the, the same thing because there wasn't a lot of pushback. There wasn't like a like, all right, well, listen, I'm going to contact medical control, mm-hmm. you know, or I'm going to contact the sending facility or the receiving facility again and be like, right. hey, so what are your thoughts on us starting an I.O.? Um, cause that would have been another option too, I think. And I think one of the mistakes that was uh, kind of made early on, and this just kind of comes from a general unfamiliar, an unfamiliarity with pediatrics is that, uh, their blood pressure line that they drew in the sand to determine if they're going to go for an IO or not. Um, or at least the medic was saying, look, let's defer to that blood pressure line to yeah. see if I even really want to have this fight. Um, that was flawed. That was absolutely flawed. Yeah. And like uh, what you were saying is pediatric assessment triangle doesn't include a blood pressure in there for a good reason. And that is that kids' blood pressures only tank when everything else has failed. And so yeah. by the time you're seeing a low blood pressure, you're behind the ball. So I think that was a flawed line to draw on the sand. And I think in this case, there were a couple opportunities. Um, one, uh, the fire medics opportunities, I think, are more educational and things that need to uh, kind of go be better uh, going forward in terms of recognizing what is seizing activity and what's a sick kid. But the ambulance paramedic also was right, was in the same basket of not recognizing that uh, a blood pressure is a valid line yeah. because they d- jumped on that train just the same. And it's also one of those things that given the rules of this municipality where the ambulance medic can be like, look, I see what you're saying but this is my ambulance and I really have to take charge on this thing. That is an opportunity where the ambulance paramedic can take some of the skills that you and I just talked about in terms yeah. of respectfully delivering a clinical reason why, and then ultimately saying, Hey, I am going to put my foot down on this and say, I need to do this. And you have to recognize that where we're at, I am PIC. This is not my preference of how to work, but I feel it's in the best, yeah. in the patient's best interest. Yeah. And so and we can deal with it after this. And if, you know, I, I would far rather take the, I overtreated this kid than undertreated. And then Absolutely. you go and then you go that way. And it's one of those things where it's like you got to be respectful but there's nothing wrong with being firm. And at the end of the day, let's say you are wrong. Let's say you are wrong and you get there and this is not seizing activity and now there's an IO. IOs come with their own set of complications. That's one thing to keep in mind is that you are putting a hole into a bone which feeds blood supply and uh, to the surrounding body and there's room for infection there, a large infection. Um, but same with an IV, really. Yeah. You know, I mean, both these things have infections. So there's always things to consider. If you mess up an IO, you can damage a piece called the epiphyseal plate, which can prevent further um, bone growth. And uh, so there are risks associated with starting the IO. But um, those risks are pretty minuscule. They're pretty rare. 
And it's one of those things where uh, the, the, again, take the eye rolls from the doctors and the nurses. Don't take the shaking fingers from them. Yeah. And I think if you come in with a, you know, like if you come in with a really good reason, hey, listen, their cap refill is delayed. They were tachycardic. They've mm-hmm. had multiple seizures. Like you have enough. They had enough there to defend. You know, like you, you have enough there to defend the decision you made. Yeah. Yeah. So it's easier to sit down in front of your uh, physician advisor and say, look, the cap refill was low instead of, well, I just thought it was cold. So that's, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> those are two easy things. Anyway. Why didn't you do this thing? I just didn't want to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Great answer. Are we good to wrap that? I think let's wrap it up. All right. So thank you again for listening to EMS 2020. We will have an episode out the next time we have an episode out. Don't know when we're going to turn. We're actually going to do those. Uh, <laughs> so these first couple episodes are going to be great. Just going to be lots of this kind of shit. I don't know what we're doing. Uh, Anyway. All right. Yeah. Thanks again for listening. And we look forward to uh, making another one for you guys.